0: This is going to be one of those connecting the dots messages at the beginning that some of y'all like and and some of you don't. My intention is that this morning's message is going to be the final sermon in the series on the church at Ephesus. We started this a little over a year ago, about 40 messages ago. There's more that could be said, right? We could relate the entirety of Paul's letters uh, to Timothy we could relate those to the church at Ephesus, but instead we've just taken a few passages which most clearly relate. We could also connect all of John's letters to the church at Ephesus as well, because um, we know historically that John went on to minister at Ephesus before being banished to the island of Patmos uh, later in his life. Revelation 2 brings us to the conclusion of what the Bible has to tell us about this church as we've followed Ephesus through the New Testament. And I've called this series Ephesians, A Church We Know. So let me just remind you of some of the things that we know and we've learned, and this is going to take a minute. The city of Ephesus is on the western edge of what we call Asia Minor or modern-day Turkey. It was the largest city in the region. It was essentially a a jewel in the crown of the Roman Empire. And it was so wealthy that we talked about how the city looked. There was the huge 25,000 person amphitheater. There were uh, uh, marble sidewalks at places in Ephesus. The presence looming over the city was the great temple to the goddess uh, Artemis, if you were talking Greek mythology, or Diana, if you're talking about Roman uh, mythology. It brought in tourists, and the whole city was fully dedicated to the worship of Artemis. And so in Acts chapter 18, the Apostle Paul enters the city, he finds a synagogue, he goes into the synagogue, and he starts preaching. The gospel of Jesus as the Messiah, as the lone light in this dark world. And many Jews in the synagogue believed, and also as time went on, many Gentiles believed. And those Jews and Gentiles were challenged to not hold each other at arm's length. They were joined together into one assembly. And in Acts 19, Paul spends three years in Ephesus. He rented out a lecture hall where he taught Every day, so that from the church at Ephesus, the gospel was spread throughout that region of Asia Minor. Acts describes that during that time, many Ephesians believed, abandoned their pagan and occult practices. They collected their magic books and burned them at great personal expense. And ultimately, the success of the gospel of Jesus caused there to be an uproar the city's silversmith guild led by a man named Demetrius started a riot in hopes of murdering Paul they were losing money as people believed the gospel and the silversmith guild could no longer sell their little models of the temple of Artemis or their little statues of Artemis and so uh, for hours they had the entire city mobbed together shouting Great is Diana of the Ephesians, right? And so at that time, Paul's time in Ephesus was almost done. And after three years of ministry, he continues on his missionary journeys, but he knows that he is leaving that church to uphold righteousness in a hate-filled and wickedness-fueled environment. And so in Acts chapter 20, as he is on his way Back to Jerusalem, Paul stopped at a nearby port city called Miletus and he called the elders of the church at Ephesus to him and gave them a tearful goodbye. In this final face-to-face message, he warned them about the dangers they were facing from outside the church as well as dangers from within the assembly because he said even some of those elders who were with him, hugging him and crying with him at that moment, would soon turn away from the truth and draw people after them. And still, Paul was not done with them. Later, he writes to the church at Ephesus, sends them a letter, and we went through that letter in its entirety. And Paul told the church at Ephesus to remember, you are saved by grace alone, not any worthiness of your own. You are not to think of yourselves as a group of Jews over here and a group of Gentiles over here because everyone whom Jesus has reconciled to God, he has reconciled to one another. He's told every member of the assembly has a spiritual gift to be used for the glory of God in the church and so live under the influence of the Holy Spirit because we're in a battle, not a battle against flesh and blood he said but against principalities and powers and the rulers of darkness in this world you need to put on the whole armor of god in order to withstand the schemes of satan paul still wasn't done then he sent timothy to ephesus paul had warned those elders of the church at Ephesus that some of them would fall away and certainly it appears that that happened because he sent Timothy to Ephesus with instructions on how to correct church leadership, how to deal with false teaching and he gave him a list of qualifications for elders and deacons, how to reestablish the leadership within that church. But Paul's most adamant command to Timothy in his time at Ephesus we looked at last week was to preach the word it's the inspired word of God because Paul says it is God breathed and it's good for doctrine for reproof for correction for instruction in righteousness and so preach it that way what the church at Ephesus needs is a steady and consistent teaching from the word of God so all of that is what we've covered in the past year but between what we've covered and what we're going to talk about in our text in revelation 2 there's still more to say now we did a series on first through third john not that long ago so i don't intend to go back and try to re-preach everything just to show how it connects to the church at ephesus but just remind you that history tells us that in his old age the Apostle John ministered at the church at Ephesus. So those letters of 1st through 3rd John were almost certainly written to believers within his sphere of influence in and around Ephesus. We're not going to review everything from those letters, but there is something I want you to see in them. So if you would, go back to 1st John and let's just take a really quick tour of one important point of his letter the basic message of first john is that you can know with assurance that you're truly saved and one of the ways you can know that is because that you know the love of god towards you is seen in your own love for the lord jesus your love for others whom the lord jesus loves and your loving obedience to the word if you think i just use the word love a lot Let's go through 1 John for a second. 1 John chapter 2, verse 10. He who loves his brother abides in the light, and there is no cause for stumbling in him. And verse 15 in chapter 2. Do not love the world or the things that are in the world. Anyone who loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. In chapter 3, verse 1. Behold, what manner of love... The Father has bestowed on us that we should be called children of God, therefore the world does not know us, because it did not know Him. Look down at verses 10 and 11 in chapter 3. In this, the children of God and the children of the devil are made manifest. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is he who does not love his brother. For this is the message that you heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. Verse 14 through 18, We know that we have passed from death to life because we love the brethren. He who does not love his brother abides in death. Whoever hates his brother is a murderer. And you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. By this we know love. Because he laid down his life for us, and we also ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. But whoever has this world's good and sees his brother in need and shuts up his heart from him, how does the love of God abide in him? My little children, let us not love in word or in tongue, but in deed and in truth. Look at verse 23 in chapter 3. And this is his commandment that we should believe on the name of His Son, Jesus Christ, and love one another as He gave us commandment. In verse 7 of chapter 4, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is of God, and everyone who loves is born of God and knows God, but he who does not love does not know God, for God is love. In this, the love of God was manifested towards us, that God sent his only begotten Son into the world that we might live through him. In this is love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his Son to be the propitiation, the atoning sacrifice for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another, no one has seen God at any time, but if we love one another, God abides in us and his love has been perfected in us. Well, look down at verse 16 in chapter 4. We'll read right into chapter 5. We have known and believed the love of, that God has for us. God is love and he who abides in love abides in God and God in him. Love has been perfected among us in this. That we may have boldness in the day of judgment because as he is, so are we in this world. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear because fear involves torment. But he who fears has not been made perfect in love. We love him because he first loved loved us. If someone says, I love God and hates his brother... He is a liar, for he who does not love his brother whom he has seen, how can he love God whom he has not seen? And this commandment we have from him, that he who loves God must love his brother also. Whoever believes that Jesus is the Christ is born of God, and everyone who loves him who begot also loves him who is begotten of him. By this we know that we love the children of God. When we love God and keep his commandments. For this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments, and his commandments are not burdensome. You get the idea that as John is writing to those believers near Ephesus, that love is a major concern of his letter. Right? God is love. Love is from God. Love for Jesus unites us with God. And if you're a child of God, you are going to love the other children of God. As he said there in 1 John 5, 3, the very expression of love for God is obedience to the Word of God. And so, your purpose for being in the Word is that you can be obedient because of love. Now y'all, I know this is a long introduction. But I think it's helpful to have all of this in mind. You know the church at Ephesus. You know the challenges that they face, the challenges of of church unity and fighting the schemes of Satan. You know that Paul spent three years teaching them the doctrinal truths of God's word and then sent Timothy to preach the word. So they were instilled with doctrinal truth. But later, John's concern is the way that they hold on to that truth not just as a means of proving how much they know, but in obedience in order to show their love for the Lord Jesus through their love for one another. So with what you know of the church at Ephesus, what do you think the danger is for them? Because I think it's fair to say, with the possible exception of the church at Jerusalem, we don't see any other church in the New Testament that has as much apostolic teaching and influence as the church at Ephesus. If we asked what church has the most solid doctrinal foundation of any New Testament church, we would have to say, it's the church at Ephesus. But only a few years after John writes those letters, he gets banished to the island of Patmos, out in the Aegean Sea, about 50 miles off of the coast of Ephesus. And the Lord Jesus appears to John and gives that aged apostle a message for the seven churches of Asia Minor. And the first message is to the church at Ephesus. And this is what it says, Revelation chapter 2, verse 1. To the angel of the church at Ephesus write. These things says he who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks in the midst of the seven golden lampstands. I know your works, your labor, your patience, and that you cannot bear those who are evil. And you have tested those who say they are apostles and are not, and have found them liars. And you have persevered and have patience and have labored for my namesake and have not become weary. Nevertheless, I have this against you, that you have left your first love. Remember, therefore, from where you are fallen, repent and do the first works, or else I will come to you quickly and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. But this you have, that you hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate." He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will give to eat from the tree of life which is in the midst of the paradise of God. I want you to see from this final lesson for the church at Ephesus. Doctrinal knowledge and faithful living must be fueled by a heart devoted to love for the lord jesus and if it's not then he's going to have nothing to do with it if ephesus is a church we know then revelation 2 1 through 7 shows us how without love a church you know can die now it's not all bad the lord jesus begins with what they've got right Look at verse 1, the Lord Jesus describes his concern and care for his churches. Every church has an angel and that might be an actual angel like a spiritual being or it might just be the simplest sense of the word, a messenger. I tend to think it's the latter. But the point is that in these seven stars in his right hand is that the Lord Jesus is holding and upholding his churches. He's walking, he says, in the midst of the seven gold lampstands. So those are symbolic of his churches. In other words, he's fulfilling his promise to be with his churches always. And after reassuring them of his presence with them in verse 1, he asserts his knowledge of them in verses 2 and 3. Right? I know your works jesus says your labor your patience that you cannot bear those who are evil and you've tested those who say they are apostles and are not and you found them liars and you have persevered and have patience and have labored for my name's sake, and have not become weary right i know your works he says so let's let's just take comfort in that for a moment because just like the church at ephesus The Lord Jesus is with us and He knows our works. There's there's nothing that is hidden from Him. All of their hard work was not lost on Jesus. He knows the church at Ephesus has been in the middle of that spiritual battlefield. If you ever wonder if the Lord knows what you've done and what you've endured for His name, be assured, He does. He knows it's not lost on Him. And to prove this, The Lord Jesus goes on to describe what he knows of their works. He says he knows their labor. That's a word that means toil. It means to to work to the point of being drenched with sweat or exhausted from effort. To be a church of the Lord Jesus in the midst of the kind of spiritual darkness that existed in Ephesus required labor. And Jesus knows it and he sees it. He says he knows their patience. The word "patience" here in Greek is the word "hupomone," and it carries the idea of patient endurance, steadfastness. Remember, the city of Ephesus was still the destination for all the pagan worship of the goddess Diana. Hundreds of Temples to Diana or Artemis have been found throughout that region but the one in Ephesus was considered one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. For the church to remain in Ephesus they faced levels of resistance that we could hardly imagine as they were slandered and disparaged and persecuted throughout the city and yet Jesus says that's what the church was willing to do. They didn't Embraced Jesus because it was easy. Being a Christian in Ephesus was far from being easy. And Jesus knows it. He says he knows that they're uncompromising, right? says one of their works is you cannot bear those who are evil. They would not tolerate wickedness. The word bear there literally means to carry. And it's evident, this is true both outside and inside the church. The Ephesian assembly would not carry along with wickedness. Immorality was not something they overlooked and ignored. They combated wickedness outside the church, in the world around them with the gospel, and inside the church they would not bear, they would not carry those who continued to embrace sin. When when Jesus praises them here for being unwilling to carry evil it seems likely he's commending them for the practice of church discipline maintaining purity within the church because it's inconsistent to speak to the world about their immorality telling them they have to abandon their sin and cling to christ and yet in the church carry along people who have are holding on to their sin and not holding on to christ the church at Ephesus just wouldn't have that, and Jesus commends them for it. Further, Jesus knows that they're discerning. Look at the end of verse 2. Jesus tells them, you have tested those who say they are apostles and they are not, and you found them to be liars. So in addition to being wisely intolerant of wicked behavior, the church at Ephesus was also wisely intolerant of wicked teaching paul had warned them about false teaching he sent timothy to set things right when false teachers threatened the church's doctrine right in first john two twenty six, john says that he was writing because there were some that were trying to seduce or deceive the church and to their credit The church at Ephesus seemed to listen to that. Jesus said they could test those who taught and be discerning enough to recognize an unbiblical lie when they heard it. Down in verse 6, he even specifies one area. He says, you hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. Most likely, the deeds of the Nicolaitans describes the teaching of a specific false teacher named nicholas we can debate that if you like but what is not debatable is that jesus is commending them because they hate what jesus hates when you hate what jesus hates you're doing good and so as jesus praises this church at ephesus in verse three he uses many of the same words again right you've born you've carried the weight of being a christian you have patience you have, like steadfast endurance you've labored not just in the toils of this world but he says for my name's sake you've labored you you haven't fainted you haven't grown weary the church at ephesus we are to understand was made up of faithful workers who remained steadfast to the calling of the lord jesus laboring for his name this church <clears throat> was a, a bastion of faith. It's a, a stronghold of Christian obedience. And we would expect that, right? I mean, we, we know the church. We've, it was founded on the gospel. It was started by the Apostle Paul. The, the pastors of this church would include Timothy and, and the Apostle John. They are the direct recipients of probably eight of the letters in the new, uh, inspired books of the New Testament. They don't have to be straightened out on their behavior like the church at Corinth. They don't have to be scolded for abandoning the gospel like the Galatians. They're not preoccupied with weird ideas about the second coming like the church at Thessalonica. They won't put up with sexual immorality like the church at Thyatira later on in Revelation chapter 2. The church at Ephesus is doctrinally sound and hardworking. If you give them a problem, they would solve it. If you give them a, a spiritual final exam, they would ace it. Of all the churches in the New Testament, the church at Ephesus is the one we would look at for an example. But of all the churches in the New Testament, the church at Ephesus is the only one to whom Jesus ever says, if you don't change, I'm done with you. Because Jesus doesn't just know what they're doing right. He also knows what they've got wrong. And so just imagine this for a moment. One Sunday in Ephesus, a messenger arrives saying he has a letter from from John, that aged apostle stranded out there in the Aegean Sea. And someone opens this scroll and begins at Revelation chapter 1, verse 1, reading about the glorious appearance of the Lord Jesus to John, about His presence and His power, and then continues reading this message, right? right to the messenger of the church at Ephesus. I'm upholding your messenger with my, my hand. I'm in the presence of my churches. I'm with you. I know you. I know all your hard work and your purity and your patience and your sacrifice. But y'all then, whoever it was who was reading this out loud to the church probably had to take a deep breath as their eyes scanned the words that they were going to have to read next. Verse four, nevertheless, I have this against you that you have left your first love. Remember therefore, from where you have fallen and repent and do the first works or else I will come to you quickly and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. There probably weren't more than a handful of people in the congregation who had the spiritual insight to expect... Those kind of devastating words could be coming to them from the Lord Jesus. That that would be Christ's assessment of their church. Verses 4 and 5 serve as a wake-up call to the assembly of saints at Ephesus. As much as Jesus holds them in his hands and walks among them and knows them and loves them, he also knows them and loves them enough To be honest with them and say, look, you have left your first love. And if you don't repent as an assembly and go back to how you were before, I'm through with you. Now note, he does not say you have lost your first love. That is how we would talk about it. We talk about love like it's a hole you can fall into or a a feeling you can fall out of. To say someone lost love would, would be assigning about as much as blame as misplacing your car keys. And yet the words of Jesus here does assign blame. He doesn't say you have lost your first love. He says you have left your first love. That is, you have forsaken it. You have abandoned it. So who or what have they abandoned? Well, the wording in the original language doesn't necessarily solve the question. It it says something like, you've lost the way you loved at first. So some would argue that this first love is their love for the Lord Jesus. Others in light of John's letters, and we pointed some of those things out, would say they had forsaken their duty to love one another. A few commentators actually make persuasive arguments that the love they've left is love for those who are lost. They're no longer actively engaged in evangelism. They're content being their own little hard-working, doctrinally sound group. There's really, I don't think, any need to debate which of those the Lord Jesus intended. Because first off, he's speaking directly to the church at Ephesus in a way that they know what it is that they've done. But mostly, there is not one of those objects of love that can be separated from the other. And that's part of why I wanted to show you through John's letter that that's what he addressed. Jesus is, after all, the one who summed up the entirety of the Old Testament commandments, the Old Testament law, by saying it is as simple as, Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. John's letters tell us that God's love for us results in our love for the Lord Jesus, our love for others whom Jesus loves, and also, any love we have for those outside of the church is the kind of love that comes from a desire to see more people worship and love the Lord Jesus. Meanwhile, it wasn't long ago, we saw in 1 Corinthians 13, the Apostle Paul taught us that without love, everything we do is meaningless, right? You can speak with every human language or even the celestial language of angels. And without love, all your eloquent speech is just making noise, he said. You can have the gift of prophecy and know every mystery of scripture. And without love, all your knowledge is nothing. You could have so much faith that you could remove mountains. But without love, even miracles are meaningless. Even if you were so generous as to give away all your possessions to the poor, if you were so committed that you would die as a martyr to the faith, without love, all your sacrifice is worthless. And somewhere along the line, the church at Ephesus, which was clearly morally upright and doctrinally sound, they walked away from the very reason we should be morally upright and doctrinally sound. Jesus told them, like, I know your hard work and your dedication, and I know all the things that you've got right, how you can identify false teaching. You can listen to someone who says they're an apostle and go, absolutely not. That's not true. And I know all of those right things are being done for the wrong reasons. And don't miss this. He says, because you've left the way you loved it first you're dangerously close to me leaving you. <clears throat> if someone walked in this morning with a scroll and they opened it up and they started reading to the to the angel of the church at Beverly Manor right would what follows be much different than this? Listen, there was no specific day when the church at Ephesus went off the rails. I mean, knowing what we know about churches, surely it is something that happens slowly. They were working hard out of love for the Lord Jesus. They were upholding biblical morality out of love for the Lord Jesus. They were maintaining doctrinal purity out of love for the Lord Jesus. And then one day you could look at them and say, they were just working hard and upholding biblical morality, and maintaining doctrinal purity. They found themselves going through the motions, deaf to all the warnings of those few who saw what was happening, certain all the while that the Lord Jesus was happy with them, until the day they finally got his message that says, unless you're doing all of that for me, soon you're going to be doing all of that without me. He says in verse 5, I will come to you quickly and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. In verse 1, there's those seven lampstands that are symbolic of the seven churches and the Lord Jesus is among them. He's present among them. So this warning of removing the lampstand is to say essentially, you're no longer going to be one of my churches. I'm not going to be with you anymore. This is the equivalent of being unchurched by Jesus. Now, we don't know how, (laughs) great, my watch just told me it's not sure it understands. I don't know which one of you told that to it, but we don't know if or how this all played out in Ephesus. Like we can't say biblically with any certainty that the church at Ephesus continued down this path and was unchurched by Jesus. And we can't say that they listened and repented and remained a a faithful church until that day that persecution essentially overran them. But just for the sake of argument, if Jesus did follow through on this threat, if they refused to repent and Jesus did what he said he was going to do, what would that have looked like? Would they have recognized the day that it happened? Would the world from the outside looking in know that it had happened? How do you know the moment that a church that is full of morally upright, hardworking, doctrinally pure, but unloving people, how do you know the moment that that stops being the Lord's church and is just a community club? Because I'm telling you, the day that the Lord Jesus removed their lampstand and walked away from them, I'm convinced they would have still been coming together on Sunday. They would have still looked like morally upright, hard-working, doctrinally pure people. A church is in danger when it considers its morally upright and doctrinally pure past as an adequate foundation for the future. A church, it can lose its influence, it can lose its witness long before it loses its existence. The warning here to the church at Ephesus and to us is that without the foundation of love for the Lord Jesus and all that we do, a church can die without ever realizing it's dead. So we've got to start wrapping up here. But in, in this text, the Lord Jesus not only tells them what they've got right, And what they've got wrong. But he also shows what they've got to change. Look at verse 5. Remember therefore from where you have fallen. Repent and do the first works or else I will come to you quickly and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. A church can restore its broken relationship with the Lord Jesus by repenting and following his commands. And his commands are not complicated, right? First, remember, he says, remember, therefore, from where you have fallen. A lot like, you know, a a married couple needs from time to time to sort of remember what love used to look like. Jesus says this church needs to look back and remember how their relationship with the Lord Jesus burned brighter in the past. Specifically, he says, remember from where you have fallen, right? It. It was not always like this, Jesus is saying. There was a time when they loved Jesus supremely and they loved one another because he first loved them and all of their service and doctrinal uh, steadfastness was service to him out of faith and, and passion and love. Second, he says, repent, the word literally means to have a changed mind, to go back to what was before. Repent pictures that you are walking down a road, but that you have turned around, and now you're walking back the other direction. In his commentary on this section, Daniel Aiken writes this. He says, in calling for the Ephesians to repent, Jesus reminds them that labor is no substitute for love, Purity is no substitute for passion, and deeds are no substitute for devotion. Do not pat yourselves on the back for doing good things for the wrong reason. Jesus is going to judge your heart. Third, he says, do the first works. (laughs) Which is odd, because I'm, I'm convinced that the people in the church at Ephesus, some of them would argue, like, we are doing our first works. We're doing what it is that we've always done. Y'all, listen. To say that we're doing the same thing we've always done is not the same as saying we're doing things for the same reason that we've always done them. It's not that Ephesus or, or maybe us have stopped being obedient or hardworking or upholding truth. It's that the motivation for what they were doing, had changed. It was no longer out of love and devotion for Jesus. It was just going through the motions. So go back, Jesus says, to when serving Him wasn't just going through the motions. It was more than just a a week-after-week religious routine. Every one of us knows there was a time when serving the Lord Jesus was our consuming passion, right? Our our joy. Repent. Go back. Or the end, Jesus says, will come quickly. Ephesus is a church we know. And we can see ourselves in it and we need to learn from its warning. Doctrinal knowledge and faithful living must be fueled out of a heart devoted in love for the Lord Jesus, may, may we may well need to remember and repent and go back and embrace the works that we used to do for the reason we used to do them, purely out of love for the Lord Jesus.